This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our board slash OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. We are continuing on the pediatrics train. And today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the different neuromuscular disorders. Now, again, if you have not already, the podcast companion book is now out and released and ready for you all to check it out it has all the notes that goes along with exactly what we're talking about on this podcast so you can go and check that out you can follow along you can write some notes on the podcast if you want to or you can write some notes on the on the book actually uh, and use it as a study aid so without further ado let's go ahead and hop into today's episode i hope everybody's already subscribed you are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, what is the where uh, in the acetabulum in cerebral palsy patients with hip sub uh, with hip hip subluxation? Uh, so the, uh, when the hip subluxes out, it's going to wear posterior superior. So similar to like a, a general, just like traumatic hip dislocation. And, um, you basically, you evaluate these, uh, pediatric hips using, uh, I believe it's called the, uh, Reimer, uh, classification scheme, which, um, I'm kind of just quickly looking up for you right now, unless you know off the top of your head. Oh no, I got to look it up every time too. <laughs> yeah. Um, here, let me, let me just grab it. I got it here right now. So um, basically it's uh, there's, there's several stages. And so there's a at-risk hip, there's hip subluxation, there's spastic dislocation, and then they call something like windswept hips. And, um, I don't, I don't think we're really covering all of those, so I'll go over them fairly quickly. But um, a hip at risk is a hip abduction of less than 45 degrees, and they have partial uncovering of the femoral head. So um, basically, they, uh, they have acetabular dysplasia because they have partial uncovering of the femoral head their hip can only abduct to less than 45 degrees. So they're going to keep their hips at midline and most likely uh, uh, that's going to put this kind of backward pressure uh, out on the acetabulum. And um, then you have hip subluxation, which is a Reimer's index of greater than 33% and uh, disruption in the Shenton's line. So that hip is starting to move out of the joint. You get that posterior superior acetabular erosion. And basically the Reimer's index is the percentage of the femoral head that has left the acetabulum. So if uh, greater than a third of the head is outside of the acetabulum or superior to it, 
that means you're at hip subluxation. And then spastic dislocation is when you just see an uh, actual dislocated hip. They have a Reimer's index of 100% because 100% of the uh, femoral head is outside of the acetabulum. And then windswept hips is you get abduction of one hip and adduction of the contralateral hip. So it's one of those are the the pelvis looks like wind started on one side and went to the other. And you basically, you brace the adducted hip and you surgically treat the uh, abducted hip because the abducted hip is most likely going to be the one that's uh, going to uh, dislocate. Um, so yeah, that, that was a quick kind of go through all of the hip uh, subluxation areas and the Reimer's migration percentage. But um, uh, one thing you'll see more than Reimer's migration percentage is uh, that the gait patterns in cerebral palsy, and the most common one is a crouch gait. What is that? Yeah, so I mean, if you just think of this as like, you just think like if you're going to go crouch, you know, like how they show in those movies when the Grinch was trying to sneak into somebody's house and they're crouching and you're just getting <laughs> in that position. <laughs> and so your hip are, your hip is flexed, your knee is flexed, and your ankle is dorsiflex. So that's what the crouch gait pattern is. So again, you have hip flexion, knee flexion, and ankle dorsiflexion. And uh, the treatment for this, so non-operative treatment, is going to be a ground reactant reaction, uh, AFO, which is similar to an ankle foot arthrosis, but it has like this anterior lip um, under arthrosis as well. Uh, so that's kind of the ground reaction part of it. Uh, operative treatment options. Again, you can lengthen the tighten structure. So if your hip is very tight in flexion, you're thinking of lengthening the psoas. If your knees are very tight, you think of lengthening the hamstrings. Then to fix the ankle dorsiflexion, sometimes you may need to do some bony procedures, so like an osteotomy of the foot. Sometimes you may need to do a femur osteotomy. But there are different bony procedures that can be done. Hopefully, they're not asking all, us all of that, but hopefully just asking us to identify what crouch gait is. Uh, now, what is the treatment for foot deformities seen in cerebral palsy? So, for example, like they can still get equinovalgus or varus. They have planovalgus. They can also get hallux valgus. So all these different uh, uh, these different conditions. The first thing you want to try with all of these cerebral palsy patients is bracing. Um, similar to a lot of other pediatric conditions, especially like scoliosis too, is really to not jump to surgery from the beginning because a lot of these cerebral palsy patients are already getting so many surgeries for some of the other issues that they have that are not orthopedic that we don't want to take them immediately to surgery. So um, if a question like this comes up, always think of conservative management, bracing, and see if that can treat it. If not, then you always have surgery in your back pocket. If it's a uh, flexible deformity, then you're thinking more kind of soft tissue uh, releases, um, tendon lengthenings, that sort of stuff. And then if it's a rigid deformity, then you have to think more of the bony procedures. And we're not going to go into specific equinovarus surgery for cerebral palsy because it's a very similar surgery that you would do otherwise uh, for a child who does not have cerebral palsy. So think flexible deformity. If you can get the foot plantigrade uh, from wherever they were, then think about the muscles that are involved in preventing that foot from getting there and act on those. But if it's a rigid deformity and you cannot get the foot back to a neutral foot, 
then you're thinking about having to do some sort of bony procedure that's going to realign the bones, either like a lateral, lateral column lengthening or uh, plantar flexion of the first ray or something like that that's going to help you get to a uh, neutral plantar grade foot. And uh, speaking of that, so what's a flexible equinovarus foot in a CP patient likely due to and what tendon transfers could you use? Yeah, so, you know, you, again, we're fixing some of these, the same pathology that we talked about in our foot and ankle stuff. But again, so for our hind foot varus, you can uh, split the posterior tibialis tendon and transfer that. Um, for the dynamic supination uh, in a swing phase, which we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you can do a split to bat transfer. And then for the Aquinas, you can do an Achilles lengthening. So um, that's how you fix the varus, uh, the dynamic supination, and then the Aquinas. Um, now, what are the surgical treatment options for cerebral palsy kids with hip subluxation greater than 50%? So if they are uh, less than eight years old and they have less subluxation, less than about 60%, then you can think more conservative. So like a adductor tenotomy, an iliopsoas release. And basically what you're trying to do is to um, prevent uh, those muscles that are highly contracted from continuing to cause that hip subluxation. So if you release the adductors, then they can get more hip abduction and with more hip abduction, um, just like we would do for uh, DDH in a uh, baby, you want that hip abduction to help that femoral head get covered in the acetabulum. Uh, but if they have greater than 60% subluxation, then you're thinking more of a uh, femoral or a pelvic osteotomy because you're there's too much subluxation that that femoral head is not going to spontaneously reduce with a soft tissue release. And so those femoral osteotomies are, think like a varus femoral osteotomy because you're trying to bring that head more to midline and into the acetabulum. And then if that's not enough or if that's not strong enough, then you're thinking more of a pelvic osteotomy like a Dega or a San Diego, which is going to increase the coverage of the femoral head. And then those who are older than eight years old, and they have more than 40% subluxation, you're going to take those patients to the operating room for those femoral and pelvic osteotomies because they are older and um, their soft tissues have matured more. And so you're going to want a more robust procedure like a femoral varus osteotomy or a DEGA to increase the um, acetabular coverage. And then for bilateral non-ambulators, um, you can always do a bilateral proximal femoral uh, osteotomies or like a like a girdle stone type of procedure that um, essentially can give them still a functional hip, but you're not worried about the femoral head and the acetabulum. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to ROCK content is free to residents. 
Get started at rock.aaos.org. Um, and then what are some of the treatment options for a symptomatic failed hip reconstruction or hip arthritis in the CP patient? Yeah, some of the things that, that you're talking about. So you could do a um, you could do a subtrochanteric valgus osteotomy. We're trying to make a little bit more valgus and uh, resect the femoral head. Um, you can do a proximal femoral resection and just do an interposition arthroplasty. And you can also do a prosthetic arthroplasty, like a conventional total hip. Um, but you may have to use, if you go back to our adult reconstruction lecture, where we talked about different types of stems and, and the Wagner stems and the more uh, modular stems, you may have to use something like that in some of these patients that may have more complex deformity than just a normal. Um, now, does bracing typically help stop progression in cerebral palsy patients with scoliosis? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, while their cerebral palsy may not progress, their deformities do. Um, and it's just because of the constant spasticity that happens in these muscles and how imbalanced they are. And so they do have a higher complication rate. Um, and really all neuromuscular scoliosis patients have a higher complication rate with surgery. And you're going to do a spinal fusion for any curve. Um, that's greater than 50 degrees. And uh, it's just, it, it's really more for uh, them to have better care. Um, this was always something that I had a difficult time in residency with because you see these kids and they are like just not in a good place. They're GMFCS5. They are unable to care for themselves. They it's really difficult to understand exactly what they're thinking in their minds. Are they, are they wanting this? Are they not? And um, to have a, a kid undergo such a massive surgery is, is tough because they're only doing the surgery to make their caregivers' lives more easier. And so you're actually doing a surgery for somebody else rather than the patient. And um, it, should, it was just tough. And I understand it, they can still benefit from the scoliosis surgeries and their lung function and, and they sit up straighter and all that sort of stuff. But it is quite the daunting surgery for them to have um, when all you get out of it is a little bit of a better sitting posture and they're able to, to clean easier when they have an accident. So um, it is what it is. Uh, but what is a myelomeningocele? Yeah, so myelomeningocele, this is when you're going to actually have protrusion of the dura and the spinal cord um, due to failure of the neural fold um, to close. And this You got to go back to your medical st school days to remember this. Uh, but again, so myelomeningocele, uh, you're going to have the protrusion of the dura and the spinal cord because the neural fold did not close. Um, so the initial treatment of this is going to be closure. Um, this We're not going to, I, I, orthopedic surgeons, I don't believe are going to be doing this, um, but the initial treatment is going to be closure, uh, plus or minus a ventricular peritoneal shunt, uh, if there's any hydrocephalus or a Chiari malformation. And um, and these patients may have a latex allergy. I saw that a couple of patients, a couple um, uh, areas where they mentioned that. So again, these patients may have a, a latex allergy. So what should you do in a patient with a history of a mild meningocele um, closure who now has increased spasticity and scoliosis? Uh, you want to repeat the MRI 
because uh, you are worried that they have uh, recurrent hydrocephalus uh, or a VP shunt malformation or a syrinx uh, with a tethered cord. So um, the, that's something that you're, because uh, having a spina bifida or myeloma lingocele does not necessarily make them at risk for scoliosis per se, because it's down in the lower portion of the spine. It's, it's usually at the lower lumbar levels where this happens. And um, you are just concerned that with that closure, now they've scarred down and they've developed a tethered cord or some sort of uh, neurologic issue that's uh, causing the scoliosis now. And uh, what's the classification for myelomeningocele based on? Yeah, this is going to be based on the lowest intact um, uh, functional neurological level. So, for example, L4, you're going to have intact knee extensors, uh, ankle dorsiflexion. Um, they're going to be able to ambulate. And for those, you're going to treat them with an AFO. Um, so um, these patients, again, you're treating them with that because they don't have any intact ankle plantar flexion because, again, L4 is the lowest functional level. So L4 is working. So if it's one above that, then if it's L3, then you don't have intact knee extension, ankle dorsiflexion. Uh, it's very difficult to ambulate. And so the treatment algorithm is going to be a little bit different. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about the management of hip subluxation in cerebral palsy patients. Um, what about the management of hip subluxation in patients with myelomeningocele? Um, sometimes it can uh, determine... Uh, where uh, the myeloma nigocele happens. Um, you can observe um, if it occurs at the mid-lumbar level, um, but it is associated with a high uh, recurrence rate uh, for the hip subluxation. Um, and uh, for the inter uh, operative interventions, um, those are the ones where if it's unilateral, you want to think, well, I want them if it, if it's, bilateral, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit. If it's bilateral, then their legs will at least be the same length. Their hips will be the same because they usually sublux at the same rate and uh, they can have more uniform and symmetric bilateral lower extremities if it's bilateral. But if it's unilateral dislocation, um, then that's one you may want to treat because they have a normal side and an abnormal side. And if you can fix the abnormal side, then they may not develop the gait difficulties or um, the, the issues with uh, limb lengths and, and all of that. So uh, operative treatment for unilateral dislocations happens uh, quicker. Um, and especially if it's a low level lesion like L4, L5. How do uh, patients with the history of myelomeningocele present with a fracture? Yeah, so these are going to be uh, the patients that just kind of, uh, it's like almost like the autonomic dysreflexia. So they're going to be hot. They're going to have a red swollen leg. Again, their exam is not going to be the, the same uh, because they have a history of a myelomeningocele. So again, that's going to be based on the level of the um, lowest intact functional neurological level, which it may not be L4. So they may not have sensation in those areas uh, and you want to get x-rays and you want to splint these patients typically the ways to treat them if they have a fracture um, and so what are the 
just kind of moving forth and, and switching gears towards um uh, some of these muscular dystrophies that we all had to remember for med school and maybe even step three that that's coming back again for us. Uh, but what are some of the uh, different types of muscular dystrophies? So the ones you definitely have to know are Duchenne's and Becker's. Um, the other ones, uh, fascio-scapulohumeral, uh, myotonic and limb girdle muscular uh, dystrophies. If you're really interested in pediatrics, then by all means, look those up, go in depth, <laughs> enjoy learning about it. But for the OITE, for ABOS, and for just general, hey, doc, I met you at the grocery store. My my kids got muscular dystrophy. What do I do? You, they probably have Duchenne's or Becker's. It's unlikely that they're going to have the other types. So um, definitely know these next few questions about Duchenne's. And the biggest one that you're going to 100% get tested on is what is the inheritance pattern of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and what are some of the uh, clinical manifestations? Yeah, so this is going to be X-linked recessive, X-linked recessive, X-linked recessive is the inheritance pattern of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. This is when they're going to have absent dystrophin. Um, so what they'll present as they'll, they'll have a positive Gower sign, but they won't say that. They'll say like they use their hands to rise from the floor from the seated position. Um, that's so they'll describe the Gower sign. So you need to know that. Uh, it's also associated with toe walking, calf suitor hypertrophy, and increased lumbar lordosis. And on laboratory markers, they may have elevated creatine kinase levels, so elevated CK levels. Um, what is the medication? I, I didn't even know about this, but what is the medication that can be used to treat Duchenne's muscular dystrophy? Uh, so you can do, it's um, a corticosteroid um, called uh, deflazocort. And what it does is, uh, it's actually been shown to decrease the risk of scoliosis, but it's a corticosteroid. And when people are on long-term steroids, we've all seen the issues associated with that in um, like cystic fibrosis patients, uh, rheumatoid patients, lupus patients, all of these systemic things happen where they gain weight, their uh, connective tissues are terrible. Um they have skin problems, they have heart problems. And so there is a high risk of complications, but no deflazacort decreases the risk of scoliosis. And does bracing, the uh, scoliosis bracing help in uh, Duchenne's patients? Yeah, yeah, we're having a constant theme here. No, it does not. So bracing really doesn't help much with patients that have neuromuscular scoliosis. Um, so for patients with DMD, um, no, bracing does not help. And sometimes it may actually require surgery due to some of the pulmonary complications. Um, so you would indicate these patients for operative intervention if their degree, if their uh, cob angle is greater than third degrees uh, and you want to do it before they have a forced, uh, a functional vital, cap vital capacity, FVC less than 35%. Um, and so one of the other things to know about patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is when you put them under anesthesia, if you're going to do a posterior spinal fusion on them, because again, you see their, their curve is greater than 30 degrees, um, they may have anesthesia-induced rhabdomyolysis. So know that. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you are subscribed and we will see you all in the next episode.